Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm going to cover in this audio, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 11 through 21. Our context is this. Paul, in chapters 10, 11, 12, and also going to in chapter 13, it's all about defending himself against the charges of his opponents at Corinth, the so-called super apostles, the false apostles, he calls them. And Paul, in order to defend himself, has been boasting about the great things he's done as an apostle. In the last, in the first ten verses of chapter twelve, he's talking about all the visions he had received and all the thorns and the thorn in the flesh he had because of that vision. So that's our context. We start with chapter twelve, verse eleven. I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to those super apostles, even though I am nothing. Now, Paul, of course, has been, is again, speaking ironically, sarcastically here, I've been a fool. He knows he's not a fool, but he's saying, I guess you could consider me a fool for having to boast. But I had to boast because you forced me to it, because you listened to those scum buckets. And now I've got to defend myself against them, so you forced me to have to boast. Because I have to boast because I'm your apostle, and these guys are threatening to tear your church up. I should have been commended by you, Paul says. You should have been saying what a good apostle I was, what a good spiritual father I was, and instead now you're making me defend myself because you are not defending me. You are listening to these people. And Paul says, not at all, ironically. He says, I was not at all inferior to these people. But then you notice as soon as he says that, he says, even though I am nothing. What he's basically doing here, he's boasting in Christ and not boasting in his flesh. And all through this, these chapters, chapter 10, 11, 12, and 13, he's going from sarcasm, I'm boasting, and then he goes, but I'm nothing. I'm boasting, but I'm nothing. I'm boasting, that I'm nothing. And he goes from, I'm speaking straight, I'm speaking sarcastically, I'm speaking literally, I'm speaking sarcastically. He goes back and forth. And you have to understand what he's doing here to, to, to really understand what he's saying. As an example of how he ironically calls himself a fool, we can look at 2 Corinthians 11, verse 1. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. Again, he's very sarcastic there. He's getting ready to brag a little bit and boast, but he says that's foolishness. But he's speaking ironically there, as John Gill says. Now, when Paul says, I'm not at all inferior to these super apostles, apostles, even though I am nothing, when he says, I am nothing, some people back in the past sometimes felt like Paul is saying, I'm just a sinner. Paul never said that, as Adam Clark is quick to point out. Paul does not mean to say that he he was all sin and defilement. Here's a quotation from Clark. Quote, This is not true. It is false, and it is injurious to the character of the apostle and to the grace of Christ. Besides, it is not the meaning of the text, and the use commonly, commonly made of it is abominable, if not wicked. Well, I've never heard anybody in modern times say that Paul was a sinner. Even though he's a miserable sinner, I'm still not inferior. Again, I think what Clark is saying is is that when people say that about Paul, they're trying to make themselves feel better that by saying, well, if, if Paul the Apostle can be such a sinner, I can be such a sinner, and I'm not so bad. But we don't want to do that. That's not what Paul means. He means he doesn't have anything in his flesh, in his natural abilities, in his speaking ability, in his rabbinic learning, and all of that. None of that matters. It's all in Christ. Is why he's been such a good apostle, even though God might use his rabbinic learning, just like he might use somebody's oratorical excellence. But if you rely only on that, then you are relying on your flesh, and then you are nothing. Now, when Paul says he's nothing, despite all of his so-called boasting, he's actually a very humble person, as you can see. 
In fact, in our next chapter, we read this, 1 Corinthians 15, 9-10, Paul says this about himself, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Verse 10, 1 Corinthians 15 continues, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whenever you see Paul talking about work, 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 working for God, he immediately qualifies it with, But it wasn't me, it was the grace of God within me. I can do all things through Christ. I can do all things through Christ, who strengthens me, that kind of thing. I think I've got, I don't have it in front of me, but there's four verses where Paul does that. And if you emphasize the first half of that, it sounds like you got to work, you got to strive in order to be sanctified. A lot of reform theologians, unfortunately, like to point out the first parts of those verses, you know, talking about work and strive, but we got to be sanctified by our work. But I'm telling you, you better not do that because whatever Paul talks about working and striving to show to good works for Christ, he immediately says, by Christ who is in me, by the grace of God that's in me, through Christ who strengthens me. Because in your flesh, you are not able to do anything. What did Jesus say? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Zero. John chapter 15, where Jesus talks about abiding in the vine so you can do things through the life of the vine that flows through you. Second Corinthians 12, 12, Paul continues, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. That Paul is implying here when he says a true apostle, the signs of a true apostle, he's implying that the false apostles couldn't do miracles like he could. Now, let's do, take a little rabbit trail here. Does that mean that all apostles must do miracles? The signs of a true apostle? You could interpret that in saying, well, if, you're not, if you can't do apostles, if you can't do miracles, you can't be an apostle. I don't believe that. An apostle is a messenger of God who starts churches and edifies churches that have already been started. That's what you see. Now, the, some apostles did miracles in order to do that, but not all. And my great example is Boniface, who, who evangelized all of Germany, one of the greatest missionaries in all of early church history. I think he was in the 7th century when Germany was nothing but a bunch of long-haired barbarians living in the woods and worshiping tree stump, demons and tree stumps. He didn't do miracles. He was criticized for it, too, because back then they expected miracles. But are we, gonna, are we prepared to say that Boniface wasn't an apostle? So I don't think Paul was laying down a qualification for apostleship. He's pointing out, rather, he is pointing out an advantage he personally has over the false apostles. That's what he's trying to do here. He's not trying to, to do a job description of an apostle. And there's another extreme and unfortunate interpretation you could take of this and say, and you could say that if you're not an apostle, you can't do miracles. That a non-miracle worker could not be an apostle. I didn't say that right. Let's say someone who is not an apostle could not do miracles. Well, the problem with that is in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 in the list of all spiritual gifts, mainly charismatic gifts in those two chapters, miracles was listed as one of those gifts. And nowhere in those chapters does Paul say that it was apostles who were exercising the gift of miracles. And not only that, I personally have seen miracles done on me, and I've prayed for other people and seen their bones grow out in the thin air. I'm, I am miles and light years away from being an apostle. So this is an unfortunate thing to say that a true that that you have to work a miracle to be an apostle in my humble opinion. There's a related scripture here about signs and wonders and preaching the message. Hebrews 2, 3 through 4. This verse is cited by John Jameson Fawcett and Brown as relevant. This verse, the author of Hebrews says this, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It, and the it there refers to the message, if you go back to verse 2 in this passage, 
the previous verse, it, the message of God, was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And people say, see there, you got to be an apostle. you got to have miracles done. you got to do miracles if you're going to be an apostle. But that's not what that verse says. It doesn't say the apostles were confirmed by miracles. It says the message was confirmed by miracles. So if you got John Doe, who was not an apostle, preaching the message of God, and he can do a miracle to confirm the message, not his apostleship. I don't know why people can't read that verse. And you constantly hear, see, you constantly see commentators and Bible scholars quoting that verse and saying, see there, apostles have to do miracles. That is not what the verse says. Now, let me read you a great quote from Jameson Foster and Brown about miracles. Quote, the silence of the apostles in 14 epistles as to miracles arises from the design of those epistles being hortatory, not controversial. The passing allusions to miracles in seven epistles prove that the writers were not enthusiasts to whom miracles seemed the most important thing. Doctrines were with them the important matter, save when convincing adversaries. In the seven epistles, the mention of miracles is not obtrusive, but marked by a calm air of assurance, as of facts acknowledged on all hands, and therefore unnecessary to dwell on. This is a much stronger proof of their reality than if they were formally and obtrusively asserted. Signs and wonders is the regular formula of the Old Testament, which New Testament readers would necessarily understand of supernatural works. Again, in the Gospels, the miracles are so inseparably and congressly tied up with the history that you cannot deny the former without denying the latter also. And then you have a greater difficulty than ever, namely to account for the rise of Christianity. It's a great quote because it shows that miracles are just their miracles. Big deal. We don't emphasize them. We just mention them because they were done. Of course, today, if you mention a miracle, some cessationalists chop your head off. Oh, that can't be. That died out in the first century. Nonsense. No, no, they did not. But on the other hand, if you've got somebody that talks about all they talk about is one. That's why you see these signs and wonders ministries. And you see a church that has signs and wonders church. I don't believe you ought to emphasize them that way. I think Jameson Foster and Brown's got the good balance. Just do them. And then just say, I mean, if you do a miracle, people are going to know that the miracle was going to done. They're going to know that Jesus did it. And they're likely going to get saved. It happens all the time, despite what cessationists think, as they're cooped up in their American office buildings. People out there in the mission field tell you about miracles all the time. And But the 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 message of those missionaries and evangelists and the testimonials they give is about the people who get saved. They come to Christ, and they come flocking to Christ. That's the way it was in China when I, I heard several Chinese people talk about miracles, and they like, what's the big deal? They just said it just happened. For example, in Xinjiang province, one time I heard an old lady who was insane and had a hole in her heart, and her husband, who was an old man at the time, and he had an underground Bible school there that they could pack up in case the cops came, and they would... They showed us how they would stuff all the books under boxes in this box and this place and 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 just make it look like a farmhouse instantly. And they did it. They showed us how to do that. And he was talking about how his wife got saved from her hole in her heart and her and her insanity. She had friends that would come out there to that remote farm and they were Buddhists and they'd say, "Oh, we pray for you," but they never got. She never got healed. But then some Christian friend of hers, a relative, I forgot which, came and prayed for her and then she got her mind back. She was totally okay and her heart was healed and. And then people started getting saved all over the place. Well, these are simple country folks on the backside of China. They hadn't heard of John MacArthur yet, thank God. 
But it wasn't the miracles they were talking about. They mentioned the miracles, but what they were talking about is they believed in Jesus. You haven't really seen Christianity. You see the Chinese church. If you ever get a chance to go over there, assuming the the commies will let you in, assuming that Xi Jinping, Mao Zedong, Ping will let you in, he's completely shut down the church in China now. Now the church is now meeting in five or six people at a time in homes. So they were ready for the virus, the coronavirus, when it hit. And they're using Zoom now and, and telemark, uh, tele, teleworking type software so they can communicate with each other. Yeah, they're hunkered down. But I'll tell you what, they're growing like crazy. And you'll never see a church like the church in China, fastest growing church in the history of Christianity. And they do miracles. They had lots of miracles over there. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, for in what were you less favored, Paul continues, in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. A little more sarcasm on the part of Paul. Now, you know, people say you can't be sarcastic. Paul was sarcastic all the way through Second Corinthians. I, that's, I wish I could bet somebody a million dollars. Can you, are you trying to tell me that sarcasm doesn't exist, exist in the Bible? I will bet you a million dollars that it does. I would be rich. That's easy to prove. So Paul was sarcastic. Now, why was he being sarcastic? Well, he's saying, look, I did everything for you that I did for the rest of the churches. I taught you. I was devoted to you. I did miracles for you. I did everything for you, just like I did for all the other churches. The only one thing I didn't do, though, I didn't take any money from you. Now, Paul never took money from those he was actually ministering to, but he did take money once he left, like he took money from Philippi, the Philippians especially. But he never did that with Corinth. And so Paul says, well, excuse me. Forgive me for doing, for wronging you that way. He's very sarcastic. Now, he also says, he's already mentioned this in Second Corinthians 11, verses 7 through 12. For did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? Now, what is, what's happened here is Paul refused to take money because he didn't want to look like he's making a profit off the gospel. And the false opponents, many of them who were enamored of Greek rhetoric, and the sophistical, the, the practice of sophists to take money for the teaching, these critics looked at Paul and said, see there, he's so ashamed of his teaching that he can't even charge for it. So he's, he's given it for nothing because it's worth nothing. So Paul continues here in Second Corinthians 11, 8, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. That would probably be Philippi. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. And what I am doing, I will continue to do. In, order, in other words, what I'm doing by not taking money, I will continue to do by not taking money. In order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. So Paul in that patch is there is very, very clear. He's taking he's not taking money because he is because he didn't want to burden them. It's not because he was ashamed of the message he was teaching, not that he thought it was worth nothing. Now when Paul says, For in what were you less favored, and what were you Corinthians less favored than the rest of the churches? I've already mentioned one possibility in how they were less favored, because Paul had not taken money from them, so they, they were less favored because they didn't have a chance to participate financially in Paul's ministry, as Adam Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown say. And so Jameson Fawcett and Brown say that this would be regarded by the Corinthians as a mark of their spiritual inferiority. So they, to summarize, there are two basic bad constructions that p people could put on Paul's act of not taking money. Number one, critics could say that Paul didn't think his message was worth taking money for, or critics could say Paul didn't think the Corinthians were worth taking money from. 
Ah, uh, we're not going to take money from you. You're, we're not going to let you participate in the spread of the gospel because you're a nothing church. Or we're not going to charge money from you because our message is no good and it's not worth taking money from. For either reason, it's absurd, and Paul defends against that. We go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14. Here, for the third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I, need, for I seek what is yours, but not what is yours, but you. What is yours means your money. I seek you, not your money. And I will not be a burden... And he's saying, this is the third time I'm coming to you. The first two times I didn't take money from you. And guess what? The third time when I show up here coming down from Macedonia for the third time, I'm not going to take money from you then, for then either. What third time is this? The first time was when he started the church in Acts 18. The second time is the so-called painful visit. People disagree on exactly when that occurs. I'm assuming it occurs somewhere between 1st and 2nd Corinthians. The pain, so-called painful visit. And now the third time he's coming to the Corinthians, he's still not going to take money. Why? For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. And Paul's referring to the fact that he is the spiritual father of the Corinthians. And he wants to say, hey, children don't give money to their parents. Corinthians, you're my children, so you don't give money to me. I'm your parents. He's still not going to take money from them. Now, what an attitude that is. Compare that to TV preachers today. I don't think I even have to make the comparison for you. Think about that. He is saying, I will not take money from you. As opposed to send your money in, if you give me $100, God's going to multiply it, and you're going to get you a big fat Rolls Royce and a, maybe a boat and an airplane. Just look at the difference in the attitude between Paul and current day money grubbing televangelists, who don't pay their bills, by the way. That's something I learned that televangelists are notorious in the, in the industry, in the TV industry, for not paying their bills on time. Not all of them, of course. I'm, you know, I'm some of them more honest. But there's a lot of them that aren't, or at least not responsible. Now, this phrase here for children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children is does not mean, does not give sanction for the ungodly and unholy practice of children not taking care of their parents when they get old. Of course not. Paul is not talking about that. He's just trying to make a point that, hey, Corinthians, I don't want you to give me money. When Paul says, for I seek not what is yours but you, Paul is now making a jab at his opponents. You're, they're taking money from you, Corinthians. Uh, are they seeking you or are they seeking your money? And, of course, anytime somebody takes money, they're opening themselves to that charge. That's why Paul didn't take money. But the false apostles were doing it, probably. Again, there's a dispute over that, but I think they were. And since and Paul's, so probably Paul's taking a, sla a slam at them. We go to 2 Corinthians 12, verse 15. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Paul spent. He didn't spend money on them, but he spent his time, his talents, his strength. He spent himself for their souls. That means their whole life, not just their immaterial part of their body, their whole life. We now move to 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 16, the next verse. Paul continues, but granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better view by deceit. Now, Paul is referring here to some charge that had something to do with stealing money. I'm convinced. Again, he's using sarcasm here. I was crafty. Of course, he doesn't literally believe he was crafty. He's, he's mocking those who are accusing him of being crafty. Then I've studied Bible says that what he's doing is he's, he's referring to his opponents, his false, the false apostles who are his opponents, who charged that he was using the Jerusalem collection as a pretext for making money for himself. Stealing money from the collection. And so now Paul's got to defend himself against that. When he says, by granting that I myself did not burden you, I guess 
it, he would say, okay, well, if, if they're not going to get me on that charge because I can prove it so well, I didn't take money. But the next thing they're going to do is, well, yeah, he didn't take money, but he's stealing money from the poor collection. He didn't take up offerings, but he's stealing money from the poor collection. Now, there's a couple of ways that Paul might have stolen money from the Corinthians. A couple of ways that the false, apostle could have, false apostles could have accused him. They could have just accused him straight of stealing money from the poor collection, just taking it, as the NIV Study Bible suggests. Uh, John Gill, Adam Clark, and Jameson Foss and Brown all suggest that maybe his agents are going around collecting money for Paul, when, but they are allegedly and openly collecting money for the Jerusalem poor saints, but instead of collecting money for the poor saints in Jerusalem, they're taking the money, collecting the money, and then taking it and giving it to Paul. That's kind of what the, the, the um, Jim Baker's outfit in Charlotte, I forgot the name of it now, the one that went bankrupt, that's how they got in trouble. They took up money for one thing and gave it to another purpose. You can't do that. That's unethical. A lot of ministers get in trouble for that kind of stuff, misappropriating funds. You raise it, for, you you openly say you're going to spend the money on this, you better spend it on that. Second Corinthians 12, verse 17 and 18, Paul's going to defend himself against financial misconduct. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Paul is saying my previous two visits, I acted just like Titus did. I took the same steps as Titus did. And I'm going to assume right here to make things simple here, this is on Titus's previous visit to Corinth. It's somewhere in the letter Paul refers to. He had, he's been there for a year, a year ago, and he had made preparations for the Corinthians to take up that money. And he said, I urged Titus to go, and Titus didn't steal any money. And I also sent a brother with him, and the brother was witness. Titus didn't steal any money. And when we were there on our first two visits, hey, didn't I just act the same way Titus did? I didn't steal any money when I started the church, Acts chapter 18. When I came back on the painful visit, did I take any money then? No. Let me read you a couple of scriptures that we that shows that Titus had gone earlier. Remember now, Titus is with Paul in Macedonia, having gone to Corinth and come back from Corinth and met Paul in Macedonia, and he's going to go back to Corinth carrying the Second Corinthian letter. But Paul had already sent Titus there earlier at least once. Second Corinthians 8, 6, Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. He's, Titus has already started taking up that poor collection, that poor relief collection. And 2 Corinthians 8.16, But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. So, Titus has already gone down there. He acted appropriately. Paul has been down there twice to Corinth. He acted appropriately both times just like Titus did. We didn't steal any money, so we're innocent. Now there's a little problem here. It has to do with tenses and the fact that Titus went to Corinth so many times it can be confusing. So let's look at that. Paul says in verse 18, I urge Titus to go. Now, some commentators say this is a so-called epistolary, 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 epistolary area, aorist. It's an aorist that you use writing when Greek people use to write letters. They put the past tense, well, actually the aorist, aorist, which is not really a past tense, but it, it can be used with a past tense a lot. And the idea is that once the letter has gotten to the recipient, it's past tense for the recipient, even though it wasn't past tense when the letter was written by the sender. So when Paul says, I urge Titus to go, he's referring to the trip 
to Corinth from Macedonia carrying the Second Corinthian letter. The letter gets down to Corinth, and they open it up, and they read, Oh, I urge Titus to go. And so Paul is really referring to a present act of sending Titus as he writes the letter. I am sending Titus to go. Well, that's well and good, but there's a problem with that. If you look at the rest of the verse, it says, Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? But did Titus take advantage of you? That did there sounds like past tense. It was a previous trip of Titus. So I'm going to assume it was a previous trip, not the upcoming trip from Macedonia to Corinth with the Second Corinthian letter. That's not what Paul's referring to. He's referring to a previous trip that Titus took. One little minor point here. Yeah, I urged Titus to go in the past to prepare for the poor collection, and I sent the brother with him. We don't know who this brother is. I had one commentator, I think it was NIV Study Bible, said that's the same brother that that Paul is sending right now from Macedonia down to Corinth carrying the Second Corinthian letter. And, and, and to, to complete the poor relation, that's the famous brother or the brother who is praised among all the churches. Second Corinthians 8.18, with him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches. Well, but the problem is, I don't, this verse 18 I think is in the past on a previous trip, not Titus's upcoming trip carrying the letter of Second Corinthians, but a previous trip, Paul says he sent the brother. Well, I don't know who that brother is. Could be the same famous brother who was praised among all the brethren. Nobody knows. Everybody speculates all over the place. But the point, I don't, if it is the same brother, it's a different occasion than the getting ready to happen occasion when the brother is going down there with Titus. The famous brother is getting ready to go down to Corinth with Titus. But the point is, and all this, is that Paul, when Paul sent Titus, he didn't send him alone. He sent him with a brother, especially when he's dealing with money. If he's going down, if Titus was sent earlier to prepare that collection, he's dealing with money. So that means he has to have a, a witness, and that witness can testify. Titus didn't steal any money. Not money. Now, it's possible, of course, that both Titus and the brother could have stolen money, but you know you can't have perfect accountability. But you at least got another witness down there to prove Paul's innocence. We go now to 2 Corinthians twelve nineteen. Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Calls them beloved. He's rebuking them strongly, but the way he can do that is because he loves them, and they know it. Paul is boasting in God's interest, not in Paul's. We haven't been defending ourselves. We're not defending my ministry, but what I'm really doing is defending what God has done in me, so I'm defending God. It's hard to do that and be modest at the same time, but that's basically what he's doing. He's also said in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 8, For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. The Lord gave me this authority. I'm boasting a little bit too much about my authority. But hey, remember, God gave you that authority. So he says, it's in the sight of God, back in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 19, is in, it is in the sight of God that I've been speaking. And I'm speaking in Christ, in union with Christ. I'm, when G, I speak, Jesus is speaking. And the reason I'm doing this is for your upbuilding, beloved. Now, think about how Paul's words have lasted for over 2,000 years. We don't know who these false apostles are because they went buzzing off into the footnotes of history. Thank God. Which defending, when Paul says we have been defending ourselves, he could be referring to the the whole letter almost. He's constantly defending himself against the false apostles. But he could also be referring to the immediate context about that poor collection. He could... He could be defending himself for not coming himself to pick up the money. Remember, he, he, he I haven't mentioned this in this audio, but it, earlier he had decided, he at one time was deciding to go to Corinth Strait right across the Aegean Sea and decided, uh, things are too hot over there. I think I'll go up by the land right route 
go north to Troas on the western coast of Asia Minor and then move over the Hellespont into Thrace and back down into Macedonia and drop down on Corinth from the north. And then, of course, people were criticizing him for that. Ah, you don't care about the church. You're not coming over to see him. So he could be defending himself against the charge that he didn't love him, he wasn't coming. Or he could be defending himself against the charge that he sent Titus instead of himself. But those are stupid objections to Paul's ministry, just stupid. Paul has made a perfectly good, he has really defended himself well here. And by the way, there's a lot of people who say that once people start slandering you, you should never defend yourself. I've heard ministers say that. And all I can say is, well, Paul defended himself. Why? Because there was something more at stake than his personal reputation. There was a whole church at stake. So if you, you cannot fold them when there's people's lives at stake. You have to fight back. It might be unpleasant, and it might all wars are unpleasant. But sometimes you have to fight if it's other people whose spiritual lives are at stake. Now, if it's just you, well, that's, that's a different story. You're probably not worth defending yourself. But for other people, it is important. So now we go to 2 Corinthians 12, verse 20. For I fear that perhaps when I come, Paul continues, I may find you not as I wish, and then you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. When he says, I may come, I may find you, I may find you not as I wish, that means he's going to find them in sin. He lists all these sins, quarrels, jealousy, anger, hostility, anger, gossip, conceit, and disorder. That apparently describes what happens, what has happened all the way back in 1 Corinthians chapter, what was it, chapter chapter 1, I think it was, with all the factions. Well, these factions, when you have factions, you can end up with quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. You're not going to have sanctified saints living together. So Paul says, I don't want to find you like that. I don't want to find you like that. I want, you to find, I want to find you living in peace and harmony and love. And I don't want you to find me in a way that you don't want me to be. In other words, mad as hops, angry at them. So he's pretty sharp in his reproof. Now, some people have asked, well, before I go to that, uh, this is a good quotation I got from the commentator Alford, cited in another commentator. Another commentary. He says that here... Paul completely and finally throws off the apologist and puts on the apostle. He's not speaking sarcastically anymore, and he's not defending himself against the false apostles anymore. He's talking straight to the Corinthians and say, I want you to fly right when I get there. Now, there is a problem that arises because Paul is so sharp here. Because in 2 Corinthians 7, 6, Paul says this, But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. So it looks like everything's straight. And I'm assuming everything is straight. Some people say, well, that means that the last four verses of 2 Corinthians, since they're so sharp, must be the severe letter that Paul had mentioned earlier, and that somehow they got, it got mixed in with the, the, normal, the, the regular letter of 2 Corinthians, the first nine chapters. I don't believe that. I think that what's happened is, is that Paul, before in 2 Corinthians 7, is happy that they straightened out, but he's here warning against a relapse. You're doing well. Titus has told me you're doing well, but let's... Keep it that way. I'm warning. I'm exhorting you again. Ellicott, the commentator, agrees with me. He says this, quote, Something of the old anxiety which had led him to postpone his visit comes back upon his spirit. We go now to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21. We'll finish up the chapter. Paul continues, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. What he means is, if I see all this quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, disorder, gossip, and conceit, and disorder, 
If I see all that, I'm going to be humble because you're my children. It's just like any parent is humble when he sees his child doing something that gets himself put in jail. Oh, that's humbling. You go down and bail your kid out of jail. It's humbling. And Paul says, I'm afraid. I don't want to be humble. Now, again, that thing about fear, you know, Christians aren't supposed to fear. When Paul says, I fear, best way to, to think that, if not to translate it, is I, I'm concerned that. I'm focusing my attention on the possibility that this might happen. It's not that you're shaking with fear that God's not going to, that God's going to allow this to happen. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Paul finishes the chapter here by referring to one of the Corinthians' salient sins, sexual immorality. As John Gill points out, the phrase Corinthian whore was a well-known common proverb. Oh, that, that woman, she might be living in Athens, but she's acting like a Corinthian whore. So, in fact, this is another well-known fact. In Corinth, there were a thousand prostitutes who were working in the Temple of Venus there, religious prostitutes, in order to worship the pagan god, Diana, Venus, uh, excuse me, Aphrodite, Aphrodite, Venus. You got to go pay the prostitute and... Unite yourself with the priestess of Venus, with the priestess of Venus, Aphrodite. And so Paul says, look, don't do that. Keep yourself pure. All right, there's one minor point I need to look at before we finish this verse and this audio. Paul says, I fear that when I come again, that's the ESV translation, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. Now, I read that and I wonder, how does that comport with all the verses that say, don't fear, for example, Hebrews 13.6 that says, I will not fear. Well, I think it's a translation issue. The King James has, and lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you. The J.P. Green, Green literal translation says, that it not be in my having come again, my God may humble me with you. The word fear is not there. So I think it, the we in modern English, we say, I fear in the sense of, well, I'll be disappointed if it happened. I'm afraid that's right. I'll be disappointed if that's right. I hope it's not right. It's not really fear in the sense of trembling in your boots. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm now finished with 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 11 through 21. Paul continues his heated defense, his spirited defense of himself, mainly with the against the accusations of financial impropriety. We now are prepared to go in our next audio to chapter 13. In that chapter, Paul continues to warn the Corinthians against any sort of backsliding that they might be tempted to engage in. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs>